Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I know it says Luke chapter 2, but we're going to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. We're going to look at Matthew 1, verses 18 to chapter 2, verse 16. Now, I'm not going to read the passage right now. I'm going to read it when I tell the Christmas story. So we'll just keep your finger there. Let's pray, and then we'll think about Christmas this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you. And we do sing with the angels, Gloria, or glory to God in the highest. Glory to you in the highest. For you are our king, you are our God, and you are good beyond measure. You have mercy on those whom you'll have mercy. You have compassion on those whom you'll have compassion. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You keep steadfast love for thousands, and you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And we are sinners. And yet you don't clear the guilty. And you do all of this because of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the message of Christmas. We thank you for the reality of Christmas. Lord, we keep in our minds now that many here in our church family and in our city and region are having painful Christmases as well. We know there's joy, but in this broken world, there's joy mixed with pain and sorrow and brokenness. And so, Father, we pray for those who are on a high this Christmas and for those who are on a low this Christmas that we would all find hope and healing and strength in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This can only come about by your word and by your Spirit's power, and so we ask for his help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we went Christmas caroling on Friday night, a few of us, and um, one of the more interesting conversations we had was with someone who I'm pretty sure was high on marijuana, and uh, he said... Hey, have you ever read Jeremiah chapter 10 at the end of our caroling? So what's in Jeremiah chapter 10? So let me turn to you. Let me turn to Jeremiah 10. You can turn there if you're quick enough, but you can just listen. So he says, do you have a Bible? He, he pulls out his phone. He opens to Jeremiah 10 and he says this. Hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 10, 1. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord has spoken to you, house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Now think about this in light of Christmas. Do not learn the way of the nations or be terrified by the signs in the heavens. Although the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the peoples are worthless. Someone cuts down a tree from the forest. It is worked by the hands of a craftsman with a chisel. He decorates it with silver and gold. It is fastened with a hammer and nail so it won't totter. Like the scarecrows in a cumber patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm. And they cannot do any good. That's Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. What comes to your mind when you hear that read? Christmas trees, right? And so I said to him, so are you saying that Christmas trees are pagan? And he said, yeah. And it would be sinning, basically. I mean, essentially, you're saying it would be a sin against God. Or it's wrong to have Christmas trees and these customs. And as a Christian, we want to submit to Scripture, don't we? We want to obey the Bible. And so um, I won't ask here how many of you have Christmas trees. 
But, I, but we, we should ask this question. I mean, is that a proper application of the Bible? No. Is that what Jeremiah 10 is saying? Is Jeremiah thinking about Christmas trees as he writes Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5? Absolutely not. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you can't be idolatrous with Christmas trees. You can. You can be idolatrous with anything, as our brother Marcelino prayed, led us in praying and confessing this morning. But it's not necessarily that. All that to say, we have to be careful when we read the Bible and when we think about our Christmas traditions, to really get the meaning of the Bible right, the meaning of Christmas right, and really the direction of our lives right as well. So let me ask you a few Christmas questions here. I have a few, like where do Christmas trees come from? It's one of my questions. When was Jesus born and why do we celebrate on December 25th? Let me just answer these basic Christmas questions. I also have who is Santa Claus, but I think I'll save that for next year just because it'll take too long if I start answering all of these questions. Okay, but here's one. Here's the first one. Where do Christmas trees come from? Now, evergreens have long been a sign of flourishing in life because they tend to be evergreen. They're green in the summer, they're green in the spring, they're green in the fall, they're green in the winter. And so it was a sign of flourishing and life even when everything else around it was dead. Okay, and so long, long, long ago, cultures have always celebrated evergreens as this sign. And some have worshipped evergreens idolatrously. But the history of the story of the Christmas tree comes to the modern tradition of the Christmas tree finds its roots in Germany. And it's where this Christian tradition of celebrating Jesus and this pagan ritual meet head to head. Okay, so it's St. It's Boniface. If you heard of St. Boniface, he was an English bishop in Germany. He lived from 675 to 754. And um, he was the apostle to the Germans. Now, I don't know how much Roman Catholic... I mean, he was Roman Catholic, but what is Roman Catholic like in the 600s and 700s versus now? It's developing over the years, so I still don't know exactly what to make of this, but here's the point. He was there, and he was there as a missionary, and he had a period of successful ministry, and then he left there to confer with the Pope, um, Pope Gregory. When he came back to Germany in 723, um, Boniface was appalled to learn that the Germans had reverted to their former idolatrous ways. He found them in the midst of preparing for the winter solstice. We'll talk about that in a second. By sacrificing a young man. So here's the town. They're sharing the gospel. They're going to sacrifice a young man under Odin's sacred oak tree. In, in an enraged response reminiscent of Moses at Mount Sinai, Bishop Boniface took an axe and cut down the mighty oak tree of Odin. Odin, son of, or father of Thor, if you've been keeping up with the Marvel Story, among other things. <laughs> this event, which, historic, which is historically documented, um, has come to symbolize the triumph of, of Christianity over Germany, Germany and their pagan deities, divinities. Now, there's more to the story, but this tends to be legend, okay? So that's like historical, ver, ver, that's historically verifiable. Now, here's the legend that goes with that story. With the first blow of the axe, a strong gust of wind instantly brought down the tree. The astounded Germans fearfully recognized that God's hand was behind it. And, that they, and so they humbly asked Boniface how they should celebrate Christmas. And then the legend continues. Again, this is legend. This isn't history. Um, that he, that um, he pointed to a small fir tree that had miraculously remained upright and intact beside the debris of all the broken branches from the fallen oak. And so he told people to cut down fir tree and basically put it up in your houses and it would be a sign of um the tree signifies peace as an evergreen it also symbolizes immortality with its top pointing upward to heaven indicating the dwelling place of god 
Some have even said, well, it's also a triangle, so it represents the Trinity, and you, all these different ways of trying to get Christianity out of a Christmas tree. And that's the story behind it, okay? So are Christmas trees a sin? No, they're not a sin to have. Um, and Jeremiah 10 does not talk about that, but the point here is that, um, it, it, at least in the story of Christmas, it was a symbol of Christ, and it was in contrast to their idolatry. One more, or two more questions briefly. When was Jesus born? What year was Jesus born? Anyone know? Well, you would think it would be 1 AD, right? Because AD, the year of our Lord, that is when, that's how we start our calendar. So it's 2017. So you go to year one, that's the birth year of the Lord. The problem is um, Dionysius, he tried to calculate that in 525 AD, which is a hard task to look at all the historical records and go all the way back to find out when Christmas started. And so from 525, he was about five years off. So instead of 1 AD, the year of our Lord, it's closer to 5 or 4 BC. And the reason we know that is because Herod died in 4 or well, maybe like in 3 or 2 BC. And because Herod died, Herod's clearly part of the story as we're going to read in Matthew chapter 2. So that's a little bit off. One, one last thing. Why do we celebrate on December 25th? December 25th is known as winter solstice. Are you familiar with that? Have you heard of that? And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I've had youth, people in my youth group, in my former youth group, who lost their faith over conspiracy theories like this. Okay, winter solstice is techni- it's supposed to be the, the, the shortest day of the year where the sun is out. Okay, and so it's kind of like the death of the sun on that day. And then the next day, it starts to, the days start to expand again. And so um, they would celebrate this in Rome and... Um, and some of them would worship the sun as God, as a God, but many gods. So they worship the sun God. And so, um, what's his name? Julius I, Julius I, who was a leader of the church in 325, around 325 AD, said, stop worshiping the sun. Let's not worship the sun. Let's worship on, as a, leading his church, let's not worship the sun or let's not let our neighbors worship the sun. Let's take their holiday and let's worship the Son of God, Jesus. And so that's why we worship, or that's why we worship Jesus, but that's why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. It wasn't because Jesus was actually born on December 25th. And so some people have said, do you guys know that you're worshiping the sun god and Christianity is not true, and it's just this pagan Roman thing that was kind of Christianized, but you guys are really worshiping the sun? That's not, we're not doing that. It was taking a pagan holiday and then thinking about it from a Christian perspective and how you could redeem that for your family, Okay? So um, you could do that with days today. You know, churches sometimes with Halloween, they would say, well, let's have a fall festival in our church. And they, they try to redeem something that's celebrating the culture, and they celebrate it for the Lord. And so that's the story behind December 25th. Here's the point of it all, though. We want to um, celebrate Christmas and have the Christmas spirit, right? We want to celebrate Christmas well this year. But the message of Christmas is confusing. Um, that's, that's an obstacle sometimes for, for some in the culture. And not only that, life is hard. As you heard in my prayer, we go through difficulties in our life. We live in a broken world. We have pain. Not everything is the happiest place on earth, Disneyland, right? Even though we do live in America, which tends to be the Disneyland of the world, it's still broken even here in America. And our pressures that we face during Christmas can, help, can force us or cause us to lose focus. And some of us actually start to dislike the holiday, Right, with all the pressure, all the, 
all the celebration, all the customs, all the gift buying, and it gets stressful. Um, and we could actually start to not even like it. Like, I don't like the holidays, you know. It could be because we've, we, we, we are missing loved ones as well. And so this, is, this, this can, be, it, it can be easy to lose focus during Christmas. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to help you to not lose focus this Christmas. Let me tell you the Christmas story, and then we'll look at Matthew 1 and 2 to draw out two simple um, principles for Christmas. First, the Christmas story. So, as we read, as John Lee read for us, in Luke chapter 1, Mary was confronted by an angel and told by an angel, you're going to get pregnant, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to be the Savior, Jesus. And she says, how can I have a son? How can I get pregnant? I've never been with a man before. And then uh, the angel says, well, um, the Holy Spirit will miraculously conceive in you and you will have a child and you're going to name him Jesus. Mary then sings about it and is thankful to the Lord. Now, she takes a risk, by the way. In that religious culture, to be pregnant and not married or not married yet to your husband, you're engaged, you're betrothed to your husband, but you're not married yet. For her to say, yes, I will obey God and be pregnant in my religious culture where everyone who is supposedly following God is going to look down on me or is going to um, disdain me or is going to disapprove of me. And I was telling Francis last night when I was thinking about this, I said, you know, if I was in that culture and one of our church members said, you know what, I'm just fulfilling God's will, what would we say? We would confront them, right? We would say, no, that can't be. No, you're lying. You, you were immoral and um, you need to repent, we would say. And yet she is following God's will by doing this and even inviting the criticism and the opposition of her loved ones and those who are following God as well. But she decides to do it. And she said, like, uh, like we read, generations from now, people will call me blessed. So I'm a servant of the Lord. I'll do whatever God says, even if it means opposition from even God's people. And so Mary then visits her cousin Elizabeth. They celebrate. Elizabeth hears Mary's voice. And then the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy. Joseph then finds out. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth down south. They live in Nazareth. She goes down south to visit Elizabeth. She comes back up, and Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. She was just out of town, and now she's pregnant. Well, if you're engaged or betrothed to your future spouse, and she comes back pregnant, you would think what Joseph was thinking, right? But she doesn't, and Joseph finds out. And then what does Joseph do? Obviously, Joseph starts to have... Um, heartbreak, and, and then we read Joseph, or we read Matthew chapter 1. So go to Matthew 1 now, there in your Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It's, um, anyone have it in the Pew Bible? What page is it right there, Renee? You might have to go to the next page to find out. 855, thank you. 855 in the Pew Bible. It says this in Matthew 1.18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before... They came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man. Okay, he's not being self-righteous. He's just being a righteous man. And not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. He didn't believe her. He didn't believe it was by the Holy Spirit. But he still loves her. And so he's not trying to disgrace her and just make her pay. He just tries to divorce. He wants to divorce her secretly. But verse 20 but after he had considered these things, and you could imagine him thinking about these sleepless nights, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She is telling the truth. She will give birth to a son and you, Joseph, are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will give birth, will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him they will name him Emmanuel which is translated God is with us when Joseph woke up he did as the lord the lord's angel had commanded him and he married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus and so um you get, then the story continues. After that, they travel to Naz, from Nazareth to Bethlehem because the emperor has a registration. Mary gives birth there. The angels meet shepherds on the field that same night and say, Today in the city of David, tonight a, city, a, a savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. And they end singing Gloria in excelsis Deo. That's Latin for glory to God in the highest. But that's what they sang. Glory to God in the highest and peace toward those whom God favors. The shepherds go to Bethlehem. They're just out on the outskirts of Bethlehem. They go in. They see the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, just like the angel said. And they rejoice and they celebrate and they are amazed by these things. Eight days later, Jesus is circumcised and named Jesus. That's in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 and following. Okay, Simeon sees him and says, oh, this finally the prophets, the prophecies are being fulfilled. And then in the end, then we get to chapter 2, which we'll cover in a second, which is when Jesus was a little baby already. All right, but let's, let's think about this. There's, to, to enjoy the Christmas spirit, you must respond to Jesus in two ways, okay? Here's the main thing. To, to, to enjoy the Christmas spirit this year, whether you're in pain or pleasure, whether you're having good times or bad times, um, there's two things you must do to respond to Jesus. Number one, serve Jesus. And number two, worship Jesus. Okay, simple, right? Serve Jesus, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, worship Jesus. Let's think about these one at a time. Number one, serve Jesus. Serve Jesus, okay? So in chapter 1 here, Joseph was in a difficult season of life. Some of you are going through difficulties this Christmas season. He was in a pickle. He loved Mary. He was engaged, betrothed, married. He was, he was three quarters married. Let's just say it that way. Because engagement today doesn't really do justice to what betrothal was. He was three-fourths married. Okay? It was just, just waiting for the ceremony and then the consummation of it. But he was, they were legally married. That, that you have to get a divorce even though you didn't have the wedding yet. That's the only way to legally get out of it. Okay? So he's three-fourths married. He loves Mary. He was going to marry her, but she was pregnant even though they were abstinent together. And here is God. Now he has a dream and God is saying, Joseph... I know your heart is shattered in pieces, but pick it up and go marry Mary and have this child and name him Jesus. And what does Joseph do? Does he obey or does he disobey? He obeys, right? It says in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He did what he was told. He married her and he did not have relations with her until she gave birth to a son. So he obeyed. He, ser- he decided, I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to serve my wife. And not only that, here's the main point, I'm going to serve the baby. And who's the baby? Jesus. Joseph serves Jesus. Instead of divorcing Mary and, and having nothing to do with Mary or Jesus, he decides he's going to serve Jesus. 
And so the command to you, brothers and sisters, this Christmas is you need to serve Jesus. If you're in a difficult situation like Joseph was in, if you're not in a difficult situation in this season, either way, you need to decide that you are going to serve the causes of Jesus and serve Jesus Christ himself. Now, why should we serve Jesus in this difficulty, in a difficult season of life? And why should Joseph serve Jesus? Why should Joseph serve Jesus? Why should we serve Jesus? Let me give you four reasons in the text, okay? Four reasons why you should serve Jesus. Number one, look at verses 18 through 20, because Jesus was miraculously conceived. He wasn't conceived in Mary's womb through sexual immorality or even through um, morality, through sexual morality in marriage. He was miraculously conceived. Jesus has no earthly father. Mary did not commit adultery or immorality, violating her marriage betrothal to Joseph, despite the appearance. This was a miraculous conception. We talk about the virgin birth as the miracle, but the birth was very natural. There was nothing supernatural about giving birth. All the mothers here can say, well, yeah, I give birth. It was, I mean, in one sense, it's miraculous. And it's such a, a, a prominent moment in your life, but it's not miraculous like someone saying, whoa, the laws of nature have just kind of been superseded, Right? It's natural. What isn't natural is being a virgin and then conceiving. That's, well, today with our science technology, it's starting to become more and more possible. But back in that day, you know, um, it was supernatural. That was miraculous. And for Joseph, this had to be hard to believe. But what's Joseph's, Joseph's other option? What if he says, I don't believe Mary? Which we could understand. It wasn't an easy decision to say that because he would say, well, is Mary a liar? If Joseph was willing to marry her, he probably trusted her, right? I don't know Mary to be a liar. Why would she say that an angel talked to her? This is weird. At the same time, Joseph was waiting for the Messiah as well, right? Joseph was waiting for the Messiah. All, everyone was. And all that, Joseph knew that he was the son of who? In the line of who? David. Joseph had to know that If God's going to fulfill his promise to David, somehow it might come through me in some way. I'm in the line of David. So maybe this is part of it. Is my my lineage meaningless? And now he gets this dream that caps it all off. The dream is kind of what pushes Joseph over the edge to say, okay, fine. I get it. I believe her. This is true. I will marry her. I will serve Jesus. So the first reason why Joseph served Jesus, is because Jesus was miraculously conceived. Um, um, could, could this have really happened? Could, could, could a virgin conceive? Yes or no? Is that possible? Or is it impossible? Well, did it happen or did it not happen? It happened. So with man, things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What, God could do things that seem impossible for us. Number, like, for example, God created the universe just by saying, let there be light, and let there be waters, and let there be land. So he created by speaking. Not only that, Jesus is not the first person without an earthly father. You know who else didn't have an earthly father? Adam and Eve. They didn't have an earthly father. If God could create Adam and Eve, why can't he create Jesus, or you know, create a, 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 virgin, a virgin conception? Why can't, he put, why can't the Son of God come in that way? God can and has also raised the dead. So, so, yes, this is entirely possible, not because we have the scientific ways of proving it, but because we believe in a God who, who can do the impossible, what, what seems impossible to us. 
Now, someone might say, you know what, PJ, you just talked about Boniface being like the myth and the legend. Isn't this legend too? Can't this be legend? Let me give you two reasons why this can't, why this is very unlikely to be myth and legend. Number one, Matthew was written 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. That's too soon for legend to build. Even the legend of Boniface with Christmas trees. You don't write that 40 years after and it actually takes, like people believe that. Okay? Legends take centuries to build. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written decades after. And then secondly, um, there's too many, there's too many, along with that, there's too many eyewitnesses who've seen the miracles, Jesus feeding 5,000, rising from the dead, that it would be too hard to deny. And then the second reason why this can't be myth, or I would have you consider it not being myth, is because it would be counterproductive. If you read the end of Matthew, you know who's the first people to see Jesus rise from the dead? Men or women? Women. Women. Now, in that day, women could not testify in court. If you're going to try to build a religion to trick people, you don't start with women being the first ones seeing the resurrection from the dead. That would shoot yourself in the foot. The only reason you write that is if it really happened. And so, therefore, I would say you should at least think about the possibility that these things are true. Now, it's important that Jesus was born of a virgin because that shows God keeps his promise that he would send a virgin or that, he would, that someone would be born of a virgin. It also shows us that Jesus can be fully man and fully God, and yet untouched by Adam's curse and brokenness. That's the first reason. The second reason why Joseph was able... So the first reason is because Jesus was miraculously conceived. The second reason to serve Jesus here is because Jesus was promised. Look at verses 22 and 23. Verse 22. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. So this was prophesied, and Joseph knew the prophecies. I want to get into the prophecies, the intricacy of it, but there's a Christmas message, so I'm not going to get into it here. We're going to cover Matthew starting in February, so we're going to get into more of it. But the point here is Joseph knew, and the Jews knew, the Israelites knew, that a virgin, there was promise that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And when you read, that's Isaiah 7. When you read Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a son is born, and unto us a, chi- or unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He's going to rule over the house of David. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the baby that was promised. And so that's why Joseph was right to serve Jesus. And that's why it's right for you. In your difficult Christmas, or in your not difficult Christmas, to focus and serve Jesus, because God fulfills his promise. A third reason to serve Jesus is in verse 20. What, is, what does the angel call Joseph in the dream? Look at verse 20. Joseph, son of who? David. And why is David important here? Because David was the what? He was the king of Israel. He was, we don't have royalty in America, and that's a good thing, but... If he would be equivalent to the George Washington of, of America, in the sense of like, you know, the greatest king of Israel. Not the first, but the greatest. Now, I can debate with you who the greatest president is. My point here is that David was known as the greatest king in Israel, and Joseph was his son. So Joseph is in the line of the kings. And so Jesus, if he's going to be under Joseph's family, he would be the rightful heir to the throne. So a third reason why to serve Jesus is because Jesus is kingly. He's the king. And the fourth reason to serve Jesus is in verse 21. Look at verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him what? Jesus. Why? 
He will save his people from their what? From their sins. He will save his people from their sins. What does the name Jesus mean? It means it's Yeshua, Joshua. That was a common name in Israel at the time. It means Yahweh or Yah, Yeshua, Yah, Yahweh saves. Shua is saved. So Yahweh saves. They were waiting for the Savior. Now here is the Savior. So the fourth reason why we need to serve Jesus is because he is the one who will save his people from their sins. And how can he forgive us of our sins? How can he save us from our sins? We'll get to this more in February, but let me just turn to one passage now. If you're there in your Bible, turn to the right to Matthew 26. If you're in Matthew 1, turn to the right in your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. If this is your first time reading the Bible, the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, so 26, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. Matthew 26, verse 28. This is Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper. The first Lord's Supper. And this is what he says in Matthew 26, 28. Over verse 27, he says, Drink from it, all of you. And then verse 28, here's why you drink the cup. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. How is forgiveness going to happen? Through what being poured out? His blood. That means Jesus dying. Through Jesus, his blood being poured out on the cross, through Jesus' death, many will find what? Forgiveness of what? Sins. This means Jesus will save his people from their sins. How? By dying on the cross for their sins. This is the good news of Christmas. That God sent his son into this world to live the life we should have lived and die on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Now, you might say, well, PJ, what good is it being forgiven of my sins when I'm still facing the brokenness of this world? Life is still hard, okay? Yes, Jesus forgives me of my sin, but that doesn't bring back my, my loved ones who passed away. Yes, Jesus died for our sins and forgives me, but that doesn't heal the broken, the broken um, financial situation I'm in this Christmas or the broken relationships I have or my economic need or my social needs. So, yes, Jesus, great. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. But that really doesn't hit or help where I'm struggling. Let me say to you, if that's what you're thinking, you need to know that at the core of your pain is, or the, 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 the cause of your pain is sin. And not necessarily your sin, but the fact that sin is in the world. Okay? What's the wages of sin? Death. And what is sin? At the core of sin is self-centeredness, selfishness. So all the brokenness and pain we experience today is due to sin. Not necessarily your sin. Sometimes it's your sin. Sometimes it's my sin. Sometimes it's other people's sin. But the point is, Jesus Christ came here to save us from what? Our sins. Not just by forgiving us and letting the rest of our lives go, but by starting with the core cause of the problem. The core cause of all of our problems is sin in the world. Our sin and sin in general in the world. And Christ came to die to reverse the curse. That's why we're saying, enjoy to the world. The third verse says, no more let sins and sorrows, what is it? What's the next word after that? Grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's why I was kind of confused because I know thorns is next. Okay. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, how far? As far as the what? As far as the curse is found. 
Christ doesn't come just to forgive your sins and then not care about the rest of your suffering. The blessing of God will reverse all of the curses of the world. But it starts with his death and resurrection. And it starts for us with repenting from our sins and trusting in his death and resurrection. Because when you do that, you get the Holy Spirit living in you. You have eternal life. And guess what? What does Revelation 21 and 22 say? What will God do with our tears? He'll, wipe, he'll do what? He'll wipe away every tear. He will reverse the curse. Pain will be broken. Suffering will end. Christmas is the message of hope. Amen. And we don't experience all of that hope right now, December 24th, 2017. But we experience some of it now, don't we? And we will in the end when Christ returns. And so, brothers and sisters, let us serve Christ because he is the one who saves his people from their sins and breaks the curse. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, let me just say something briefly to you. God offers you hope and forgiveness of your sins and eternal life and the breaking of all brokenness, the removal of all curse as you trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins. That's the, that's the gift of Christmas, that Jesus comes down to earth to live for you, to die for you, and to rise for you if you will repent from your sins and trust in him because his arms are wide open. He's saying, come, come to me, find healing, find life, find forgiveness, and I encourage you to do that. Okay, so brothers and sisters, the point here is serve Jesus in your difficulty. Serving Jesus in your difficult season doesn't make your difficulty go away but it does give it focus and purpose, just like it gave Joseph focus and purpose in this very first Christmas. As a church family, what does this mean for us? It means that we need to be sensitive to each other's difficulties, yet firm in pointing people to Jesus. We can make two mistakes as a church family. We can be sensitive to people's pain and never point them to Jesus, right? Just sympathizing with their pain and feeling their pain, but never pointing them to Jesus. The other thing we could do is just point them to Jesus without being sensitive to their pain and just say, why are you hurting? Just trust in Jesus as if that just solves everything, right? It just takes away all pain. Those are two mistakes that our church can make. We can be only sensitive and not point people to the hope in Jesus. We can only point people to hope in Jesus and not be sympathetic with their pain and suffering. And as a church family, brothers and sisters, we need to do both. We need to listen, we need to grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep, be sensitive, and yet, even in grieving, humbly point them to Jesus. And children, if you're a child here, I see some children here sitting here, children listen up just briefly here, God promised a king for you, Jesus. He promised to give you life if you will trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. All right, let's go to the second point, and let's go to this last story. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. 1 through 12. And here the point is worship Jesus. So serve Jesus. And now secondly, worship Jesus. Now, let me read to you the story here. Matthew 2 verse 1. We'll go to verse 16. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. So he's already around one and a half years old here. This is a year after. This is not Christmas anymore. Though we associate this with Christmas story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was what? He was deeply what? Disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. They were all disturbed. 
So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ, where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The king will be born and he'll be born in Bethlehem. He's going to rule. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly, sneakily, he's a sneaky guy here, secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. Give me the exact date, guys. So they gave him the exact date. Verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I, so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now remember, the the child's not a newborn here, okay? The child's probably walking by now. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they what? What did they do? They worshipped him. That's got to be awkward, right? I mean, or just different. Seeing a one-year-old walking around or barely learning to walk, and you see these people from another nation just come and bow down to your child and start worshiping him. So they did, Verse, continuing the verse. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Wow. That's why we need to worship Jesus. And then it says, And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another Route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Wow. So Herod said, when you find the child, tell me so that I can what? Worship him. And when the wise men came, what did they do when they saw the child? They bowed down and what? Worshipped him. So what does God want us to do this Christmas? Worship Jesus. Now, we have a picture here of two different kinds of worship. We have true worship and false worship. Okay? The wise men do true worship of Jesus. The, our King Herod does false worship. What is true worship? Here are four aspects of true worship. I'll just say these briefly. Number one, they search for the king, right? They search for Jesus. They're looking for him. Here's a question for you. What are you looking for this year? What, do you, what does your heart desire? What are you longing for? What are you searching for? Who are you looking for this year? They were looking for Jesus. I encourage you in your worship of Jesus to look for and seek Jesus. Secondly, what else do they do? When they get there, they worship him as king. They bow down to him and they worship him. They focus all of their attention on him. So here's a question for you. What easily gets your respect, your attention, and your submission? And not only that, as soon as they see Jesus, they worship him. They almost do it without what? Without hesitation, right? They see the child and they worship him. What gets your respect, your attention, and your focus without hesitation? As soon as this topic comes up, as soon as this person comes up, as soon as this situation comes up, you just focus. Because it's easy for you to focus. Because you value that person. You value that thing. Worship him as king. 
And then what do they give him in verse 11? They open their gifts and they present him with what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They give him treasures. What do you do to worship? You give your best to your king. You give your best to your king. What or who do you give your best to? Your most valuable. Where do you find your most joy? That when you give for this joy, it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice. You know, the, you know, you know what I'm talking about? When, when you're so in love with someone, you're so joyful over someone, you find so much happiness that there's no cost that's too great just because of your love. You just give, you give sacrificially and you give effortlessly almost because of your value. You know, follow where, 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 where's our time going and where does our money go? That shows what we value and what we treasure. And that shows us where our heart is. So give your best to your king. And then in verse 12, what did they do in verse 12? After they were warned in a dream to go back to Herod, what did they do? They returned to their own country and they didn't report to Herod. So here's what I'd say is live for your king. So search for your king, worship him as king, give your best to your king, and then live for your king. When they, saw, when they got a command about protecting their king, who, who did they submit to? King Jesus or King Herod? King Jesus, right? They lived for him. So who are you living for when no one is looking? And who will you obey even if it means displeasing others that you care about? You know, in this world, because this world is broken, you're always going to displease someone, right? Is that true? You're always going to displease someone. Even if you're saying, I'm not going to make any decision because I don't want to displease anyone. Well, you, you displease people who want you to make a decision, right? So you can't not displease people if you're going to live in this world. You're going to displease people. The question is, who do you live for and who do you never hesitate to obey, even if it displeases other people? That's your king. That's who you live for. Who's, whose approval do you seek? Who do you, who do you commit to never crossing no matter what? That is your king. And so here, they teach us that true worship of Jesus means worshiping Jesus as our king and living for him, even if that means we displease other people. Amen. That's what they did. And then there's false worship, okay? Who's the false worshiper here? King Herod, right? Uh, Matthew 15, 8, don't turn there, but Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 8. These people, he quotes, um, he quotes Isaiah, and he says, Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These, This people honor me with their lips, or this people worships me with their lips, but their heart is where? Far from me. Okay, so there's, there's a such thing as a false worship. Okay, there's such a thing as false worship. What is false worship? Here, false worship means fake searching. Herod was searching for Jesus. But it, was like, it wasn't a real, I want to search for you because I love you. It was, I want to search for you because I want to kill you, right? Or I want to use you for my, my ends. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, well, so that I may worship him. Herod did not really want to worship Jesus. He wanted to eliminate Jesus to secure his own exaltation. So you have two choices here, brothers and sisters. You either exalt yourself... Or you exalt Jesus. If you exalt Jesus, you have to humble yourself, right? Here's the good news if you humble yourself. Here's what it says in First Peter and in James. Um, humble yourself in due season and God will what? Exalt you. Humbling yourself now doesn't mean you don't get exalted, brothers and sisters. You either exalt yourself in your way or you humble yourself now and let God exalt you in his way for his glory. We are not against seeking exaltation and seeking glory. 
It just depends how you seek it. Do you seek it for the glory of God and in God's timing and in God's way? Or do you seek to short-circuit God's way because you want exaltation and you want it to be fixed your way at your time, in your plan? Herod wanted to use God's word and use the prophecies for his self-exaltation in his own way, his selfish exaltation. So here's my question to you, church people, okay? This is for Christians and church people. Do you search for God and worship him as a means to your self-centered exaltation? Or do you find your joy in exalting Christ? And that's where you find your exaltation. That's, that's, what, that's the difference between Herod and the wise men. They wanted Christ's exaltation, and in that, we celebrate them today, right? They're exalted in that sense. They're not God, but we, we celebrate them. And yet we look at Herod, and we look at him with disdain and disapproval, rightly, because he wanted to use God. You know, you don't have to be... You could go to church and use God. You can use church as a way of using God. You know how this comes up often? This is how it comes up in your prayer sometimes. God, I do all this for you. I go to church for you. I give for you. I, I preach for you. I, I'm part of a church family for you. And what have you, God, given me? You know what that is? That's transaction, right? You're, you're trying to treat God like a transaction. If I do this for you, God, you owe me this, as if God can become indebted to us. That's really using God for our selfish means. And God doesn't want you to be unhappy. He just wants you to find true happiness. And it's not in using God. It's in seeking God and enjoying him and in celebrating him. So don't protect your exaltation against Jesus' exaltation. False worship always expresses itself in action. What What did Herod do at the end? How do we know that Herod had false worship? What did he do with the kids, with the boys, two years and under? He killed them, right? He slaughtered them. This is what happens when sin takes over. You get literally irrational and you do stupid, foolish, sinful, evil, selfish things and it seems justified in your mind because you're not worshiping God. When you don't worship God, you can justify anything. Anything. Everyone has justifications for their actions and it's always tied to who they worship. Their justification for their actions is tied to who they worship. So brothers and sisters, let's worship and value and treasure Jesus Christ this Christmas as your greatest treasure and your highest pleasure. For Christians, this means you need to meditate on Christ this Christmas, pray to him, sing to him, bring your joys and pains to Christ this Christmas. He's the only one who gives hope and life, even in our darkest days. As a church family, we need to make sure that we worship Jesus and not our own preferences as a church we've had a lot of differences i mean among our members and that's okay we need to have differences we have a lot of discussion but at the end of the day we must not disagree on who we worship right we worship jesus we submit to jesus and as a church we move together in worshiping king jesus he must be supreme not our music not our friendships not our church growth not our building not our church history not our future direction not the past not the future Jesus must be our treasure, and we must encourage each other when we gather to worship Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I'll close with this. I invite you to trust and worship Jesus. Think about your questions. Who is Jesus? What do you think about him? I would encourage you, like the wise men, to seek him out and to find answers to your questions so that you might serve and worship Jesus. If you, brothers and sisters, serve and worship Jesus this Christmas, if you fail to do it, you'll serve dead end idols like a Christmas tree, or like the other things that you're seeking, like Herod's self-exaltation. You'll try to use God, and guess what? You'll fail. 
You can't beat God in the end. And you will feel farther from God and even more empty. But if you serve and focus on Christ this Christmas and worship Him, you will know Christ deeper. You will enjoy Him more meaningfully. And you'll embody Christ to your friends and family around you this Christmas. Whether you're in pain or whether you're, whether you're in pleasure, you'll be able to enjoy and display Christ to others. So this Christmas, brothers and sisters, whether you're having an easy Christmas this year or a painful one, treasure Jesus Christ, God's Christmas gift to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, take these words and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. We pray that we would worship and serve Christ. We thank you for giving him to us and for in him giving us life. We pray that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another as Christ loved us sacrificially and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.